Morning. Thank you. Charlene, I think. Good morning. Welcome. Pediatric Grand Rounds on November 18th, 2015. We have um, Thanksgiving coming up. So this is the last Grand Rounds of November. We'll reconvene in December and hope everyone has a, a really wonderful restful holiday next week. We have a reminder, as was running previously, that we're in the thick of our intern recruitment season. And um, so tomorrow morning is our next uh, open house for recruits for our residency. And this is a reminder, breakfast does start around 7.30, so the group is there. So um, if, if some can arrive early, it, it would be great to help um, welcome the candidates. And I don't remember which room it is in tomorrow, but there's an email that went out uh, that you can check on. So um, we've got that, uh, that goodness. Today we're a little delayed in starting in that we had the integrated delivery service meeting. We had to create a wall, but we're happy uh, to welcome today um, a colleague from uh, New Hampshire, from Merrimack River Valley, Dr. Matthew Hand, is delivering Grand Rounds today. He's a director of pediatric nephrology and director of pediatric integrative medicine allied health system. Um, Matt graduated from uh, SUNY Geneseo in New York in biology and followed up with the Chicago College of Osteopathic Medicine in Illinois was just telling me about uh, a rotating internship experience. <laughs> at, uh, sounds a little bit like uh, the, um, the, the television show ER, <laughs> a little bit of everything. But um, um, completed his pediatric internship at Geisinger Medical Center and residency at Maine Medical Center where he also was the chief resident before completing a pediatric nephrology fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital. And um, after establishing a, a, a strong career in pediatric nephrology, became really one of the very first pediatricians to complete a fellowship in integrative medicine at the University of Arizona, which he uh, then integrated into his practices at Barbara Bush Children's Hospital and then uh, currently at the Elliott. So Matt is um, going to uh, uh, open our eyes about integrative medicine. Great. Great. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. There goes my phone. It's my page or two, so Oops. let me just silence it. <laughs> That's the bad form to start off that way, isn't it? Yeah. Can, yeah, Adam, can you see what it is? It's, it's something about ginseng, I think. So, um, so I, I tend to wander, so I'm going to be going sort of back and forth here. I think I have a little bit of my own attention deficit issues, so I can't really stand still for very long. Lynn, was uh, they made me stand at the CF one last time. I was behind the thing like this. Um, so... As I said, I'm Matt Hand. Um, I do nephrology. I've done nephrology since 1996 and got involved in integrative medicine um, about 10 years ago. Um, people always ask me, how did you get involved in integrative care? Um, and like a lot of people, it happened because I got sick. Um, I came back from Children's, uh, was the pediatric nephrologist from Maine, covering a lot of parts of New Hampshire. At the time, I think uh, Dartmouth, your nephrologist, uh, wasn't here anymore, so I was covering good parts of New Hampshire at the same time. I was working every day, every day, every day, every day. I think I went 736 days of, putting, of being in the hospital taking care of children. And we had a very active program. We had up to 12 kids on dialysis, and, we were doing, and it was very, very busy. And I, got in the, I was flying out to Chicago to give a... Um, uh, give a lecture at the transplant meetings, and I took a nap before my lecture, and I woke up, and everything was frozen. I couldn't move any parts of my body, my shoulders, 
Uh, and Lynn, I'm sorry, you guys have heard my stories before. I apologize for the story being repeated, but uh, I was completely frozen. And I thought, ah, oh, this must be old lacrosse injuries. Yeah, it can't be anything uh, too terrible. But I could only sleep for about 20 minutes at a time, and I'd wake up feeling worse. Um, it was like someone was sticking knives in my back, and my shoulders, and my hips. Um, after about two weeks, I was almost completely incapacitated, and I was out at, and I kept ignoring it. We're really good at that, aren't we? You know, I just kept saying, ah, you know, go away, I'll just stick it out. Um, couldn't sleep at night, and I was a camp doc out at Camp Sunshine, and it was the oncology section. And uh, the last day of the camp, in came a little girl with leukemia, um, four years old, bald-headed, had been getting, you know, had been vomiting and what have you. I thought she had an ear, ear infection. So I bend over, and I'm trying to look in her ear and I can't bend over, and I'm sweating like crazy, and I just can't move. And this little girl, bald-headed, looks at me, sticks her finger in my face, and says, you look terrible. <laughs> and I always say, when a bald-headed kid who's getting chemo, who has leukemia, who's four years old, tells you you look terrible, you look terrible. So I ended up in the hospital. My set rate was about 120-something, and I had a very active uh, spondyloarthritis. And it turns out I'm HLA-B27 positive, and I was miserable. Um, they put me on meds. I'm still trying to work. I had a full clinic, as many of us do. We keep going in to keep working, and I can barely work. Um, my, my joints hurt. The room is spinning. I, I laugh. I put kids on Indocin. I used to put it all the time for nephrogenic diabetes and insipidus, and the kids would come in and say, I feel awful on this medicine. And I'm like, how can you feel bad? It's just like Motrin. And now I'm taking high-dose Indocin, and I feel awful on the medicine. And I'm like, wow. The other thing I was is I was extremely fatigued. I was so tired, I didn't know what to do with myself. And I used to see, and my numbers were better, and I couldn't understand why I was so tired. So I'm sitting around, I can't exercise, I'm up in my room eating Ben and Jerry's ice cream, uh, gaining 35 pounds and feeling bad for myself. And three months into it, I said enough. I said, I'm not doing this anymore. So I went downstairs and I put my exercise bike on the front porch and I took out my weight bench and I could ride for maybe 10 minutes on the bike. That was about all my knees could handle because they were still sort of uh, you know, painful. And I could barely lift the bar off the bench because my shoulders hurt so much. And I was embarrassed. I'm like, this is ridiculous. But every day I did it, I felt a little better. And every day I didn't, I felt worse. So every day I did a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And then I said to myself, I'm going to change what I'm eating. I'm not going to stop eating Ben Jerry's ice cream. Still don't, OK? Um, but I said, I'm going to start eating food as, as an anti-inflammatory type food. So I'm going to start targeting this to see if I can help my joints feel better. So I started out really slow, and I changed my diet. And then I said, OK, I'm getting better. And I went into my rheumatologist, a great guy, and I said, hey, Chuck, I said, I'm getting better. And you know, I, I don't know what it is. When I don't exercise, don't do this, I feel worse. He says, well, you know, it's probably coincidence. You know, it just so happens. And I'm like, well, I know this is different. So then I started changing around how I was doing my other training. So I took my martial arts training from sort of fighting to more Qigong and Tai Chi. And three months later, I'm better, and I'm off meds, and my joints feel better, and I'm telling my doctors, and they're like, yeah, it's probably coincidence. And I'm like, okay. So now I'm stuck in a, in a terrible dilemma. Um, oh, sorry, did you need that slide up? No. Okay. Yeah, okay, as a reminder, tuck nine, okay, to UK nine. So now I'm sitting there, and I said, well, what do I do? Because I just spent part of my career putting two electrode voltage clamps in the xenopozoocytes 
looking at anion channels. And now I'm sitting here going, I did something that I can't completely explain, that I don't know a whole lot about, but made me feel better and improved my health. And I realized at that point that there was a lot more to illness than disease. <laughs> and it seems like, yeah, how many times do you have to get hit in the head with a sharp stick before you realize something? But that's essentially what happened to me. So here I was, and I ended up with this sort of internal conflict. What do I do? Do I tell patients about this? Because I wasn't trained in it. And let's face it, I was, I'm a nephrologist. I knew a lot about nutrition, but I knew a lot about calories and biochemical aspects of nutrition. But I didn't know what was actually in broccoli or cantaloupe or spinach or any of that sort of stuff. And I didn't know if there was any data that actually showed whether this made a difference. So about t I'm, I said, I have to start talking about this more. And about two years later, I end up down at the New England Pediatric Nephrology Group meetings. Very hot meeting, as you call, can all imagine. <laughs> a lot of people down there were really excited about talking about post-transplant viruses. And it was really interesting because we were talking about CMV and BK and EBV and all these different things that come up post-transplant. And it was 1% of these kids and a half a percent of these kids. And, um, you know, we really weren't sure how to treat it. They'd done a few six kids here, they'd done this, and four kids over here, they'd done this. And we weren't sure if it really made a difference and what the effects were. And, you know, obviously all of us as nephrologists having some degree of obsessive compulsive disorder were completely enthralled by this. We wanted to sit there and go, wow, look, you know, this is what we really love. But I'm sitting in the back because I got, I got to get up and move. And um, we just done eight transplants that year up in Maine. And we would have looked like the best transplant program in the history of transplant programs. Our cyclosporin, our FK levels were perfect, our creatinines were perfect. The, the kids could, our white counts were perfect. There was no infections after transplant. It was absolutely perfect. And every kid was doing horribly. And it really hit me because they were calling me during the thing saying, you know, Janie's out of school again. She can't get back in. Joey can't sleep. So-and-so stopped taking their meds because they don't know what it's like to feel well. Imagine that. You miss school three days a week because of your dialysis. And then they put you back in school six months later, and you're supposed to know what to do. And we're supposed to think that we can just happen. And every kid was struggling. They were all overweight. Their hypertension was worse because of their weight gain. They all had bone pain from their steroids and the renal osteodystrophy. And I stepped back, and I said to myself at that point in time, if I could have taught these kids early on a little bit more about diet, a little bit more about some kind of exercise that they could do, not P90X, okay, <laughs> and a stress reduction technique. I would have impacted every single patient that I took care of, 100%, not 1%, not half a percent, but every one of them. And at that point, I said, we have to change medicine. We have to change what we're doing. We have to get away from a disease-oriented system, which is what we know. We have to look at this differently. Well, I was in, stuck in a dilemma because I didn't know what to do. So I go back to Maine, and a friend of mine, Craig Schneider, who was a family practice resident under me, had gone out to Andrew Wiles' program in Arizona. And he came back, and he was starting the, the family practice part of this in Maine. And he says, well, Matt, go do it. And I said, but I don't know what to do. He says, just go do it. So I have no idea what I'm doing, literally no idea what I'm doing. I, I, I said, OK. So I, scheduled, I got the money, and I flew out. And it was a life-changing experience to go through the fellowship. And as Keith was saying, at the time, there were very few pediatricians that had gone through it. Right now, a total of about 100 pediatricians have gone through the program. 
But at the time, there was, and there was almost no pediatric specialists. So I felt like it was going to be, I was sort of an outlier. Having said that, what I realized at the fellowship was that everybody was there for the same reason, and it was to try and change how we deliver care. So what I'm going to go over today, now I've given you some of the background, is a little bit about what this is, because a lot of people don't really understand what it is. Let me put it this way. Do you believe that nutrition is important in your patient's care? Do you believe that exercise, to some degree, is important in your patient's care? And do you believe that stress plays a role in everybody's health? All right, you're an integrative doc. <laughs> We're not that far apart. We are not that far apart, and I'm going to get into this at the end. If we just did that, think about how we would be changing our patients and what we do. And the, but we get this divide, and I'm, I'm going to talk about that in just a second. So we're going to go over all this stuff. And for those of you, and, and Lynn can tell you, I sort of go all over the place. But the bottom line is that I mean, I'll get through slides. We'll go through all of this. There's certain things I really want to make sure we touch on today. And I tell the medical students, this is the single most important lecture that you will ever have. And I say that sort of jokingly. But this is something that more patients are doing and using than anything else that you could possibly be involved in, regardless of what you decide to do. So if you don't have some knowledge or some understanding of it, then you're way behind where, in terms of your ability to interact with your patients. So I always have this slide, and I show this one, I think, at the CF thing. But healing versus curing, they're very different. We, we, I mean, as many of us know who've done this for a while, we only cure so many things, okay? We don't cure a whole lot. And there's a very big difference between curing patients and healing them. And I tell docs and nurses, you can be a physician, or you can be a healer, or you can be a physician healer. They're not the same thing. They're very different. It took me a long time to realize this. I kept thinking I was a healer because I could, I could you know, put somebody and take care of their FSGS or something. But I wasn't taking care of them. So there's a difference. And we have to recognize most patients are looking some, for some form of healing. They always say you can heal somebody and not cure them. And you can cure somebody and not heal them. This happens all the time. All the time. Is there research? That's a big one. I get this. There's no data. Um, the research is all bad. We're going to talk a little bit more about this. The thing that I was mostly struck by when I was in the fellowship is how much research is actually done. Unfortunately, a lot of it's not been done in the United States. For years, most of this was being done over in Europe because it wasn't accepted here in the United States. And so in Europe, they had this, the, uh, you could find a lot in the British Medical Journals. You could, the German Commission, E, that looks at um, herbs and supplements, just like our FDA does. They evaluate them differently than we do over here. There's actually much more research. And remember, this is a, basically a, a field that's in its infancy in the United States. The fellowship in Arizona didn't start until around 2000, the late 1990s. We're about 15 years into this. So most of the stuff is really still in the early stages. There's a lot of crossover in modality. So people always say to me, you know, should I go get massage or osteopathic manipulation? You know, what about, I mean, chest PT, is that an integrative technique or is that a, a standard technique? I was saying, I remember as, a, as an intern having people argue whether chest PT had any value or physical therapy had any value. And now we're like, wait, this is, this is just works. And now we know this to be true, but there's a lot of crossover. And it's really not clearly towards the disease, but more the experiences in the life of the patient. Okay? Think about that for a second. How many patients do we have with Crohn's disease who have difficulty sleeping? 
How many patients do we have with Crohn's disease who, can't, who have recurrent abdominal pain even though their, their disease is in remission? How many patients with cystic fibrosis have pain every day? It's not necessarily about just the disease. It's about delivering true health care and health to the patient. And I think this is, and honestly, it, it's, it goes beyond just the medications. And what I'm talking about today is putting more tools in your toolbox to help the patients. Many names, many tools don't get frustrated. I say this all the time. When I went out to Arizona, I said, what am I doing? Everybody here knows more than me. Everybody knows all these different things. Take vitamin E. Go out and Google vitamin E. See how many names come up for vitamin E. There's about 1,200 different names for vitamin E. You can't remember them all. And it's embarrassing. Patients come into me all the time and they say, hey, man, I'm taking P75, 92, 43. What do you think about that one? I'm like, I have no idea what it is. And they look at me and go, well, you're supposed to know this. I used to get consults at Maine Med because somebody would come in and they're on a supplement. And they'd say, well, the kid's on site, you know, um, you know, whatever that happened to be. Can you tell us what it is? I said, I don't know what it is. What do you mean you don't know what it is? There's a, and, all it, and almost universally, there's a common theme. People change the names. They like to sell them. They like to, you know, market things differently. But the reality to it is that there are common things. And you just have to be blissful in your ignorance in this. And you have to be willing to say, okay, you know, I don't necessarily understand or know this because it goes way beyond the scope of what I can do in one, you know, in, in, as just one person. And, and I always jokingly say, when I went to medical school, I was a, I was a forestry major. Okay, so I was a forestry major my first year, and I was working for the campus police. And so I, I, uh, uh, I used to end up at scenes where people had fallen out of windows and stuff. For, and so I'd be the first one there to give medical care. So as I'm doing it, um, I said, I think I want to go into medicine. So I go home and I tell my mom, hey, mom, I think I want to go to medicine. And she says, don't you have to be sort of smart for that? <laughs> and, and I laughed, sort of. I was like, thanks, mom. But this is where I go back to that all the time. I don't can't know everything. And I, my mom's right. You know, you do have to be sort of smart. And I maybe I'm not. But the reality to it is you can't allow yourself to get frustrated by it. Because then we start going, well, I don't know. There's no data. And even if you don't really know what it is, be OK with accepting the learning process through this, because it's extensive. And opening the mind is really a difficult, is a part of this. You know, I had to have my mind open to get to this point by getting sick and having this occur. My mind also got opened by some of my patients who had these experiences, which I'll talk to you about in just a minute. But once you open your mind and experience something, it's really hard to go back. Because once you experience it, what do you do? So you come out and you say, and I, get, I start healing myself, OK? So do I go and tell my patients or not? If I don't, I have an internal conflict. If you experience something, and how many of you guys do stuff? How many of you do yoga? How many of you ride bikes? How many of you do some walking? How many of you take uh, fish oil? How many of you take vitamin D? How many of you do a little relaxation? How many of you, you know, go to church or synagogue or whatever it happens to be as part of your life and your healing and who you are? And you know this helps you, yet we don't know how to talk about it. We don't necessarily address it with our patients. And if you don't, you get an internal conflict. And I always say internal conflicts are way worse than external conflicts. Paying your bills are one thing. Dealing with an internal conflict is, is emotionally really hard and can really wear on you. And so 
And I used to get students all the time, or residents all the time. This guy, his name was also Matt, came out of my service. He was a third year med, or resident at Maine Med. And he walked in and he said, Matt, I'm doing your service because I don't believe in this. And I used to get that all the time. Seven years, he says, I've been in medicine and I don't believe any of this works. I don't think there's any data and I don't believe in this. I said, good, that's why you should be here. So two weeks later, he walks in and he sits down in the chair. And he's got, this happens too, he's got his, he his head in his hands. And I'm like, what's the matter? He goes, I don't know what to do. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, it works. <laughs> he says, and there's a lot of data. He actually gave a whole talk on the use of acupuncture in voiding dysfunctions and bedwetting. There's six trials on this to show that it's beneficial. And he steps back and he goes, it works. And there's data. And I spent all these years being told there isn't data and that it doesn't work. And, I'm in a, and he ended up going off working for the World Health Organization, working on bringing integrative techniques into some of these different places. It's fascinating. And, and, and he, but he's the one that looked at me and said, Matt, this isn't complementary alternative medicine. It's just good medicine. And that's really what we're talking about. So what is integrative medicine? This is the, if I don't get through anything else today, but this is the slide that I want everybody to sort of remember, okay? Integrative medicine is not alternative medicine. And we don't really call it, we, they still sometimes call it complementary alternative medicine. That's sort of an older term. It went from alternative medicine back in the 1990s to complementary alternative medicine to now basically integrative care, integrative health. And the most important thing that I say over and over and over again is you cannot be good at integrative medicine unless you're good at conventional medicine. Conventional medicine has changed the world. We have changed what we do in terms of management of patients. Cystic fibrosis, we look at the outcomes now. Look at the outcomes in inflammatory bowel disease. I remember when I was a resident, we, we, we were filled, the floors were filled with kids with inflammatory bowel disease. Now they're hardly in there at all. We have changed the world with conventional medicine. If you aren't good at this, you could be on the top of Mount Washington with a toga and some sandals and sprinkling powders. That's where it's at. You have to be good at conventional medicine. If you're residents or medical students out there and you say, you know, I really want to go into this because I think it's really interesting, good. Learn conventional medicine. It is absolutely critical. It is, the, it is one of the most important things. I have more patients I probably put on medicines because I do integrative medicine. I get kids with ADD come see me all the time, all the time. Parents don't want to be on their ADD meds. And I say to them, listen, you know, here's what we can do, but the kid's climbing through the roof here and, you know, and pulled everything off the walls in my office. I think you need a little bit more than that, okay? And they look at me, okay, that, that's good. When I talk with cancer patients, cancer patients all the time worried about the various toxicities of their medicines that they're taking. And I've had patients say, I really don't want to do that. I'm like, okay, but you understand, we can use the following things to decrease some of the toxicity. We can do the following things to help keep you healthy. Okay, good, give me my chemo. If you get good at conventional medicine, that's very, very, very important in terms of being a good integrative doc. Nutrition and diet, now that sounds obvious. I look at kids, and, I mean, I, I, and I look at people that I talk to and I say, do you think nutrition is important in your health? I mean, that sounds like such an obvious question, right? But we don't think of it that way. We look at nutrition as calories. I mean, we've shown this for years. I mean, in my, in my, in my profession of nephrology, the number one reason for morbidity and mortality for years was related to malnutrition, particularly in little babies who had, small, who had poorly functioning kidneys. So we got calories into them. But we didn't look at how can nutrition be targeted 
as a clear therapeutic intervention away from calories, when you look at what you're eating, the anti-inflammatory natures of food, there is so much data out here on the importance, of, and I feel silly saying it, on the importance of nutrition as, in, in, in your health, that it's really ridiculous. And, and I put this as a really, really important part. We, and I didn't think, I, you know, I thought I was good at nutrition until I got to Arizona and realized I knew nothing about micronutrients and macronutrients and, and you know, what's actually in anti-inflammatory things and phytonutrients and lycopenes and all of those things. But it really comes down to a simple thing. Eat your food with a healing intent. I look at kids all the time. All right, we got 5210, right? How long has that been around for? We got a terrible obesity problem, okay? <laughs> Why? Because we're telling them what to do. You look at a kid and you say, okay, you got a donut and a bowl of fruit. Which one will heal you? You have Crohn's disease, which one will heal you? Well, the bowl of fruit. Okay. And how many fruits or vegetables do you eat? Zero, <laughs> okay? You, you, if we look at this, I, I don't even get into the details with the kids. I say, you know what will heal you. You go to your school lunch, you know what will heal you. It's not that you can't eat the other things. Eat your food with a healing intent. I've had more success just using that line alone than anything else in terms of getting kids to eat better foods. And we target the nutrition that way. Exercise and physical activity. In the United States, exercise is P90X, it's six-pack abs, it's you know, buns of steel, it's guns. Um, that's what you have to do. Well, you can't do that if you've you know, got arthritis. You can't do that if you're 300 pounds. You can't do that if you're getting chemotherapy. I tell, I tell the story all the time. I have a kid with Ewing sarcoma. I'm sorry, osteogenic sarcoma. He'd had most of his leg removed. And he had to have an open thoracotomy to look for tumors in his lungs. And they said, uh, he, wouldn't, he was given up. He was 13. He just covered his head and he was getting chemo and he just felt awful. And, they, and the physical therapists were wonderful, but they were giving him bands, trying to get him to exercise and stuff. And he's like, this is boring. I don't want to do this anymore. And I said, what do you want to do? They said, Matt, do something. That, that's, I used to be the one that was brought in when I didn't know what else to do. Matt, do something. I said, okay. I said, Seth, what do you want to do? He says, I like knives. <laughs> I said, because he's making his own chain mail. I said, well, that's good, but your play account is 10,000. Okay, so I can't bring you anything sharp. <laughs> I said, but I'll I said, I will train you if you will do it, but I take this very seriously. Every day, 10 or 15 minutes. He says, okay. So I go home, I grab all my fighting stuff that I have, my bokin and my fighting sticks and all this stuff, and I put it in a bag. I'm sneaking past security at the hospital. You can imagine what that was like. And I get in his room, and, I ha and he's like, I can't stand. Why are you doing this? I can't stand. There's nothing I can do. And I said, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I don't take that for an answer. I said, come over here, sit on the edge of the bed. And his mom had pillows, and I was teaching him. Sticks, fighting sticks. He's turning his torso. He's tightening his muscles. He's breathing better. Six weeks later, I see him outside. He's gone through the surgery. He looks great. He did it every day for 15 minutes. I said, it also works good if the doctors give you answers you don't like. You can you know, give them a shot. <laughs> but we have to modify physical activity to reduce stress, to be whatever fits in our world. Yoga, Tai Chi, whatever it is that we can do to help. Whole systems like traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, these are whole systems that function on their own. So if you went to China, you might get treated with just traditional Chinese medicine. If you went to India, I, we, in the United States, we do more of this as taking pieces. So we take and we use acupuncture. We might use some herbs from there. We incorporate yoga, which comes from Ayurvedic medicine, into our therapies. So we patch these in to be part of what we do. 
Botanical and supplements, that's what everybody thinks they're coming to me for. This is what everybody gets frustrated with. They come in and they say, I don't want to take uh, Adderall, so give me something else, or fish oil or something like that. Um, this is what everybody thinks integrative care is. And unfortunately, it's too bad. Because yes, it's a very, very important part of what we do, but it's only a section of it. It's only a little piece of it. And, and, and it, but it's important, but it's only a piece of what we do. Energy medicine or Reiki or healing touch or Qigong, this one's always a little hard for people unless they've experienced it. Um, we use a lot of Reiki in the hospitals. There's a lot of volunteer services that come in to do it. It's almost like a, like a self-acupuncture in some ways. Um, the, the difficult thing if you're, is some patients won't do it because of their religious beliefs. So if you don't know what their religious beliefs are, you can't really talk to them about it or you can't really do it. So you go in and say, oh, we're going to do Reiki on you, or you know, somebody's coming by to do it, and they're like, hey, no, I'm, you know, I'm a fundamental Christian. I don't believe in this. Um, you ha but you won't know unless you ask. And spirituality turns out to be one of the most important things for all patients in healthcare. I was talking about this with the CF group. The CF teams, they've done surveys, and they've said, okay, here's your list. Here's the things in your, in your life that take care of you. Your medicines, your doctors, your nurses, your chest PT, your physical therapists, your spirituality. Which is the most important in your health? And which do you think they list? Spirituality. And as you go further in your life, it becomes more important. How many of us ask our patients, do you believe in God? Do you pray? Is this important to you? That's the, that's the answer. I, I mean, I, I said this when I was down, in, down at uh, um, Children's. I was giving a talk on integrative tech, uh, techniques and IBD, and like everybody just looked at their feet, you know, because we don't know how to do this. The first time I asked a patient, do you believe in God? I went, oof, I think I overstepped the boundaries, okay? <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. That was more than I should have asked this patient, and I got the most amazing answers. I had a kid come in to see me. He's a, he's, he came all the way from Bangor, very bright. He's probably going to go to MIT. He's spent the last six years working on drone projects, okay? His mom is a surgeon. His dad is a, is a, is a uh, uh, professor. And he's having all of these symptoms. And he sits there and he's like, I, don't, I believe in science. I don't believe in God. I don't believe anything happens. When did all your symptoms happen? In May. Did anything happen in May? Well, my dad's cancer came back. I said, okay. So how does that work for you if there's nothing after this? And you could see this emotional turmoil in this kid. It was clearly impacting him dramatically. But instead, what, you know, we don't ask, so we don't know. But this is really important. Manual medicine, I'm an osteopathic doc. You know, for years I didn't do any. I was you know, put, doing more manipulation on xenopus oocytes than I was anything else. But um, manual medicine, like osteopathic medicine, chiropractic medicine, massage, these can be brought into patients' cares very, very nicely. There's a lot, we're going to talk about the controversies with some of this, but we use it down, um, I did it in Maine and now down in Manchester. We treat kids in the hospital that come in. We use osteopathic manipulation. The, the CF patients use it all the time for the chest wall pain. It's really quite good. And then mind-body therapies like hypnosis, biofeedback, guided imagery. These are all things, oops, shoot, I lost it. These are all things, it's still on here, so there we go. These are all things that kids do great with and that we can incorporate. I mean, let's face it. Okay, what's the number one cause of headaches? In the, I mean, this is national studies. What's the number one cause of headaches? Stress, right? All right, well, stress. So 
How many people, when they see kids in their office, teach them a stress reduction technique? Or do they hand them Topamax? <laughs> Seriously. Kids are wonderful with mind-body therapies. Wonderful. And they, they really do great with them. So basically, ignore most of this. This is a multi-level approach. But th the third one is the most important thing. We need to change the medical model from disease to wellness. The basic concept is every single patient has more wellness than disease. Until you're right at the end of life, whether you have cystic fibrosis or inflammatory bowel disease or, what, or just a person walking around or HLA B27 reactive spinal arthritis, when I wake up in the morning, my eyes see, my ears hear, my heart beats, my lungs breathe, my GI tract processes my food, my kidneys make pee, my muscles hold me up, and for the most part, my brain thinks. And I say that to every kid that comes into my office, no matter what they have. Every patient has more wellness disease than disease. If we can teach them to bring their wellness out, that's a true health system. It's not a disease system anymore. How do we get people to recognize this? And it's, it's fascinating because we, ha we have kids that come in to see me like, I'm not sure why I'm here now. Because, yeah, I have this, but I'm actually a really healthy person when they get done with all of this. Because they look at their lives differently. We had a kid come into the hospital. She got admitted with multiple symptoms. And I taught this to the hospitalists. And she had all these different systems. It was one of those kids that you end up with like a two-week admission trying to figure out what's going on. And you're frustrated. And she walked in and asked the kid and went through this. And the kid said, yeah, I don't have anything wrong with me. Can I go home? <laughs> and she did. She went up, got up and left. She says, I'm healthy. How do we get this to happen? That's the critical thing. And you know how I learned this? A number of years ago, and for those of you guys who, if you Googled me before I came in, I took care of a, a, a little girl with mermaid syndrome. Um, this is what I became sort of known for. Um, was, she was on TV. We were on the Discovery Channel. We're on, we had three documentaries on the Learning Channel. And we were on 2020. We were on Oprah Winfrey. This is actually my shirt from Oprah, by the way. I only have two button-up shirts, and this is one of them. And, um, but she was completely fused from here down. She was born, if you guys don't know what sirenomelia is, I didn't. I mean, I knew what it was, but I'd never seen anybody that survived with this before because it's a lethal lesion. And there's a handful of girls over the course of their lives who are born with a variation on the theme. Basically, their legs are fused, but they're in, they're in easy separation. They have a bladder extrophy. They have relatively good renal function. They do fine. But Shiloh had, was, had the worst form of this. It was completely fused. She had a little tiny hole in her back that allowed a little bit of urine to drip out from this little piece of a kidney that allowed her to have amniotic fluid, so she didn't end up with pulmonary hypoplasia, and she was alive. So she was born. She was sent to children. She comes back to uh, me because they said she was going to die, and the pediatrician calls me. She's two weeks old and says she's still alive. I don't know what to do with her. I said, well, ask my mom. I don't know what to do with her either, okay? And so I took her in and started taking care of her. And the interesting part to this, and again, I know I'm going off my slides, but this, these are some of the points that were very important. As I walk in to see her, and she's sitting in this room with her parents, and she's all wrapped up in her little car seat. And she's beautiful. I mean, she's beautiful. She's got black hair and these big eyes, and she's looking at me. She's about a week and a half, two weeks old, and she's just looking at me. And I walk in, I go, oh my god, what a beautiful little girl. And I, because I, I didn't know what this was even going to look like. I honestly had no idea what I was going to find when I went in. And the parents looked at me and said, wow, nobody's ever said that before. They've always called her the mermaid. They've always called her the Sirenomelia kid. 
I said, well, look at her. And I went back to the legends of the sirens. What do they do? They, they use their beauty and their song to suck you in and then kill you, okay? And so I'm like, and I'm thinking, and that led to the next 10 years of my life taking care of this little girl. But the most important thing was I looked at the mom and dad, and I'm like, I don't know what to do with this. I'm thinking in my head. And I said to them, what can I do for you? And they said, we want her, three things. We want her to live as long as she can. We want her to be out of the hospital as much as she can. And we want her to um, die with the people that love her, surrounded by the people that love her. And I said, well, I can do that. My friends at Children's could have done that. Nobody asked. That's all medicine is. That's integrative care. And she lived 10 years. And she died of something completely unrelated. She had pneumococcal pneumonia out of the blue and, and ended up dying. She was the wellest, her transplant was great. She was the wellest she'd ever been. But interestingly, again, I'm going off topic. I'm going to get to the important stuff. Don't worry, Keith. So interestingly, <laughs> she, the, what she taught me, you know why she lived so long? She never thought she was sick. She didn't think she had anything wrong with her. I say, Shiloh, everybody's like, we got to separate your legs. Oh, why are you going to separate my legs? This is how I was made. Leave me alone. And, so, and then I looked at her, and she goes, Matt, why you got two legs? I say, Shiloh, that's how God made me. So, well, that's how he made me, and i got to go to dance class. Get me out of here. And she'd go to dance. She can't stand. She's, you know, shaking it all over the place. She had dance classes she went to a few times a week. She never thought she was sick. What if we couldn't get that into every patient that we took care of? And why don't we start that from the beginning? Why don't we start that from the moment somebody walks into our office? Instead of saying, okay, you know, and my patients always look at me and say, man, you never talk about my kidneys. I can do kidneys with half my brain tied behind my back. Okay? How do I get you to be who you're supposed to be? That's the goal. And that's what we should be doing. And that's what integrative health is. So if we continue on, and this is the complexity of a wellness versus disease model, and or the, I'm sorry, the, the concept of wellness versus disease and complexity versus reduction thought. Complexity is what we do in medicine. We like reduction. We did A, we, somebody has A, we do B, and, and sees the outcome. How often does that happen? I mean, seriously, people. If you've been in medicine for any period of time, you give a kid antibiotics for their ear infection, they get diarrhea, right? They get diarrhea, they miss a couple days of school, they try to go back into school, and now they're, through, they're you know, because nowadays you've got to be like, you're 7,000 chapters behind if you miss two days of school. Then they're getting anxiety, their belly pain's getting worse because of their diarrhea from their amoxicillin or whatever it happens to be, and then they're out from school for more. And then the parents are calling you because, gosh, we can't get them back to school and they're missing more days, and then the kid's anxiety is getting higher. That's, the comple that's complexity theory. So who's using this? Why should you be here right now? This is, the, this is really what we need to get to, not my stories. But in the United States in 1997, they estimated that about a third of all adults were using some form of complementary alternative medicine. Now back then, these were not done necessarily by the, by, in big studies. It was done like in local areas. This is one was from called the Landmark Study in California. And they estimated that about a third were using some form of CAM. In 1990, there were 420 million visits to CAM providers. In 97, it had gone up by 50% to 629 million. In 97, they estimated that about $21.2 billion were spent on this, with $12 billion being spent out of pocket. That's a pretty good-sized number. In 2007, $14 billion was spent out of pocket to treat pain alone, not for other things, but simply to treat pain. And in, um, it was almost $34 billion 
was total out-of-pocket for all issues. These are the numbers that came out of the NIH back in 2007. So people are spending a huge amount of money. Patients are going to do this. And then in 2015, this past year, $40 billion were spent on botanicals and supplements alone. $40 billion. This is being driven by patients. This is patient-driven. Let's face it. It's the one thing in medicine that I've done that is patient-driven. Everything else, we've driven. You know, if I'm treating somebody for nephrotic syndrome, I've decided how we're going to do this. Patients have come in and said, enough. Whether you like it or not, we're doing it because it makes us feel better. And we believe that it helps us. Now, we have to show whether there's data or not. The more recent estimates, but again, this is this past year, show that somewhere between 40 and 62% of all adults are using some form of CAM or complementary alternative medicine. That means if you walk into your office and you take care of any adult patients, about half of them are using something. What else in medicine is this true for? That half your patients are doing it. And yet, have we learned about it? How many have been taught, have, how much have we been taught about it? How much of us are accepting of it and what we do with it? And interestingly, higher levels of education and socioeconomic status are usually the people that are using this. When I was doing just nephrology, my payer mix was terrible. Okay? I had like 40, 60% Medicaid all the time. Now that I do CAM, my payer mix is the best one in the group. Seriously, because everybody coming in to see me, they, they've read about things. They're educated. They're looking at things. And so it has changed completely some of the economic aspects of what I do. In children, there's between 12 and 30% of healthy children. So kids that are coming through the door are using this. This is through the NIH and through Kathy Kemper, who did some studies on this. So as much as a third, in one study, as many as 40% of kids are using some form of complementary alternative medicine. But I go on the lower estimates here. That means if you're, in a, if you're in your primary care office, there's a very good chance that somebody walking in to see you, that their children are using this, particularly if they're a higher education group. And if you have an illness, and who doesn't, okay? <laughs> I mean, think about it. Who doesn't have something right now? We're no longer in the minority. We're all in the majority when you have something wrong with you. Over 50% of children are using something, um, uh, some form of CAM with chronic recurrent illnesses. In the cancer patients, it's as high as 80%. In the CF population, it's as high as 77%. There's some studies in the, in the GI population, which is as high as 60 to 80%. So people are using this. And almost all continue with their same treatments. And you can see that with the numbers here for asthma and GI issues. And this, again, this is the CF one. Interestingly, 85% of those using herbals felt it help, and they had no overt side effects. And about half had told their provider. As a general rule, in a good population where there's a lot of interaction, about 50% of the time, the patients will tell you what they're using. In the non, if it's not that, um, you know, in just the regular population, it's about a third of the time they mention it. So let's skip this one. So what does this mean? Well, back in 2000, the AAP convened a task force on complementary alternative medicine. They really didn't know what to do because patients, and I knew some people who were dealing with this back then, patients were starting to use it, and they didn't know what to do because they didn't have any training in it. And how do you advise people on what to do? And in 2001, the statement from the AAP came out um, with um, the Committee on Children with Disabilities regarding counseling patients on CAM. Well, what did they say? Talk to your health care provider, <laughs> okay? So what do you tell them? Is fish oil good? Should you be taking vitamin D? Should you be using massage? Is there anything that helps you with this? It's a very interesting dilemma. 
So and I, these are old data. I couldn't find the, the newer stuff. But what, the bottom line to this is more insurance companies and more states are starting to cover more of these services. Now, Hampshire is not a particularly good one for this. Um, they don't cover very many of them at all. Um, chiropractic in Maine was covered um, actually quite well, and the rates of it were going up significantly. So the government stepped in in 1992, and they formed the Office of Alternative Medicine by congressional mandate. And in 1998, it became the NCAM, or the National Center for Complementary Alternative Medicine. And at that point, the total research funding in 2006 was about $225 million. This past year alone, the NIH is, uh, or the, uh, they have about 100, almost 150, I think it's 125, 150 million um, that has been used for research in CAM things. It's now called the National uh, Center, I'm sorry, National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health. <laughs> Unfortunately, as a pediatrician, very little of this is, includes kids. So most of the studies don't have kids in them. There's a few that do, but we have to sometimes extrapolate out the information to get what we need. The research part of this is the one that always comes up. Everybody always says to me, Matt, is there any data? And actually, the, it's, or there's no data. And early on, back when we started looking at this, the fellowship was founded. There were over 1,400 randomized controlled trials and about 50 systemic reviews. These numbers have increased significantly. But interestingly, the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology in 2005 looked at two things. One, they showed that the quality of randomized controlled trials in CAM and the reviews were equal to that or exceeded that of conventional medicine, which is sort of fascinating to me because I wouldn't have expected that from a non-integrative journal to say that. It means one of two things. Either the data in CAM isn't that bad or the data in Western medicine isn't that good. So I don't know how to interpret it, but the bottom line is, is that it's not all this, it's all bad, it's all bad, there's nothing out there. This was the other interesting one that most people knew but hadn't been shown, was the publication bias. And that is that there was, it was the opposite of conventional medicine. If you published a positive trial in conventional medicine, it was more likely to be put into something versus a negative trial, particularly here in the United States. It was the opposite for CAM. If you published a positive trial, or you did a positive trial, they said no, it wasn't any good, and they sent it back. If you the only place that was different, and that's why you have to go looking other places, was in Europe and some of the foreign medical journals where some of this stuff would ultimately end up being published. It's very difficult to study because there's marked variation in modalities. There's differences in diagnosis. So for example, it used to make me crazy. I'd say, why don't we just take acupuncture and lay the kids down and put needles in and see if it makes their asthma better, okay? You should be able to do this, right? Just put them in the same place on a bunch of kids over here. Over here, you do something else to them and see what the response is. I said, I don't understand why you can't do this. In my Western brain, it didn't make any sense. And then I learned in Arizona, they don't have the diagnosis of asthma. <laughs> what do you mean you don't have the diagnosis of asthma? No, it's a yang chi with a yin, and it differs if you're sleeping differently and your kidneys control. It's, complete, it's looked at completely different. They said, you can't do that. It's, that's why the trials don't, you can't put them together. Same with ADHD. There's 30 trials in, on ADHD in China that shows acupuncture can be helpful. There's none in the United States. But they don't have a diagnosis of ADHD. <laughs> they have a yang energy that rises and does all these other things. So how do you compare these? That's what makes it so difficult when you're trying to look at some of these things. And also the consistency with the treatments, the dosages, the concentrations, all of those things, the compliance. It's the other hard part to this is you're asking for more compliance for these patients than you are for just giving them a pill.
Now, from an education standpoint, and this is an important one for an academic institution, a lot of times when I'm talking to other groups, I sort of skip over this part because they don't really want to hear about this. But from an academic institution, this is absolutely critical. The Consortium of Academic Health Centers for Integrative Medicine was started in 1999 with eight schools, Duke, Harvard, Stanford, Arizona, UC San Francisco, UMass, Maryland, and Minnesota. These guys got together and said, we have to somehow figure out how we're going to teach medical students and residents about this. Because patients want this. And there's more information coming out showing the benefit of it. Remember, if you just talk about food, exercise, and stress reduction alone, you're talking about improving things, right? So they put it together, and they developed core competencies for medical students in training. It's now called the Academic Health Centers for Integrative Care. And it included knowledge, basic concepts, attitudes, skills, experiential learning. If you've never had a massage, sorry, if you've never had a massage, then you don't know how that works for you. If you've never had osteopathic manipulation, what does that mean? If you've never had acupuncture, what is that like? What's it like to go to a Tai Chi class or a yoga class? What does that mean so you can at least discuss it with patients who are using it? And then self-care, walking the walk. I remember as a re uh, in Chicago, doing rounds with the surgical resident who was smoking while we're doing rounds, drinking coffee and eating a Snickers bar, you know? And he put his cigarette butts upside down like this on the table before we go in and talk to the patients. But how do we actually do this? Think about the stress that our residents and our medical students and everybody are under. Why are we not teaching them early on how to deal with this? I wish I had so I didn't end up in the hospital. Because we're grinders. How do we find the ways to do this within the system? Well, interestingly, let's take a look. Now who's joined, okay? So Einstein, Columbia, Duke, George Washington, Georgetown, Harvard, Jefferson, Oregon, Stanford, Arizona, Calgary. Uh, every, uh, this is just the first page. Penn, Texas, Washington, uh, all of the Southern California schools, Yale, Northwestern, University of Chicago. Go down the list. Hopkins, Boston University, Tufts University. Almost, there's over 60 schools right now and institutions that are part of this, that are incorporating this into their educational processes. This isn't just Matt standing up here telling you this is important. Yeah, it is me right now. But it's not, it's not the important thing. Look at this. Let's keep going, okay? Temple, Vanderbilt, Texas Tech, University of Vermont, Cleveland Clinic, Ohio State, Cincinnati Children's Hospital. This has become mainstream. This is critical. The problem with it, though, is it doesn't end up being brought in the way it needs to be brought in. How can it be part of every visit of every day that every patient has, no matter what they have? So it's great to say it. You know, it's the old mind, body, spirit. You know, we're going to do your mind, body, spirit. Here's your neuron, okay? You know, we care about you, but here's your, I mean, how do you get this? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Neuron, don't get me wrong, I use so much medicine, I hate to think about it. But the reality too is, how do we get it part of our healthcare system? How do we make that happen? Patients want this, this is where they're gonna go. And, and the universities now are accepting this. Here are the problems, and I, we're almost done everybody, sorry. The zealots and the extremes, this is the problem. The people that are out there telling people, don't get vaccinated, get chelation therapy, Alternative labs that cost patients hundreds, if not thousands of dollars out of pocket. It makes me crazy. It makes you guys crazy when somebody walks in and tells you, I have chronic Lyme disease. I gave a whole talk on chronic Lyme disease last week on this to try and address this. They have one and a half bands out of Igenix lab and they're being treated for three years with antibiotics. 
okay? We got to figure out how to deal with this. That's my job. That's what I do, okay? I'm the one, I'm the bridge between the two worlds. How do we find the balance with all of this? And our own people, my complementary and alternative medicine people, my integrative people are the problem. I really like Andy, Dr. Weil. He's changed a lot of things that we do. But let's face it, he's creating a divide sometimes. And I, I, I hope this is being recorded, I'm going to get in trouble. But he's creating a divide. He, people like to say they're different. That's how they make their cash. So, but we're not different. Think about what I asked you. Do you believe in nutrition? Do you believe in exercise? And do you believe in stress reduction? You're an integrative doc. We are the same. This is very close. We're not in this huge chasm. It's not Western medicine over here and, and complementary alternative medicine over here. We're actually very, very close. And we need to cross that bridge to help our patients. We need to change the healthcare system. And part of it is my own people, the people that I train with who do this. It makes me crazy. I'm like, listen, guys, you've got to change what you're doing here. We, can't be do we have to have data-driven stuff. And if we don't have data-driven stuff, you better make sure you're doing it safe. Research. We have to come up with better research models. It's really hard with this because there's so much variability in this. The, I was actually called by Cincinnati because they love the concept of N of 1 studies um, with this. The, the integrative models are perfect for N of 1 studies. But we just haven't been able to do it. But looking at outcomes and how we can incorporate this in and get better acceptance in some of the mainstream journals. Supplements and herbs, this is when everybody goes crazy about it. I'm giving a whole talk on Friday on this because of what happened with the New York Attorney General and what they put a cease and desist order for Walmart and T Target. You guys might have heard about this about six months ago. They said they didn't have in it what they said they had in it. And this was the wild, wild west. Well, it turns out the Attorney General probably was testing it wrong. Because now when they've gone back and looked at it, they realize the testing wasn't done correctly. And I'm, I'm, I'm not getting into all the details with it. But nobody heard about that after that. But we still, we have to come up with better regulation. We have to come up with better consistency. Education, we need to get better educated. We need to do it so we can fix payments. We have to understand what are the licensing of practitioners. If you send somebody to an acupuncturist, what does that mean? If you send somebody to get some type of a therapy, what does that mean? What are these practitioners do and how, and how do you know if they're any good? That's my job. When I came to New Hampshire, the first thing I did is I went out in the community and started looking at everybody and vetting them so I knew that we could send people to people that we trusted. Um, so what is this or what is this in my goal? My goal is to create a true wellness-based health system that incorporates all healing modalities. That's it, period, okay? I think that's what we have to do. I, and I think it's not, we're not that far from it. We think we are. If we are going to do this, we have to have a cultural shift. We have to be thinking about this every time we walk in to see somebody. We have to be present in the moment. We can't be going, oh, man, you know, I'm 10 patients behind, and I got this, and I, I, mean, I do it every day. We have to be saying to ourselves, how do we do this? How do we look at our patients and bring in this wellness model every time we see them? There needs to be an education of healthcare providers. Everyone in the system has to be. If, if the five causes of headaches are stress, sleep, food, uh, Dehydration and musculoskeletal pain, how, do we, how can we not address that? How can we not train people to have handouts, to have things that they can do to help these children with it? Same with abdominal pain. The single best treatment for functional abdominal pain are mind-body therapies and some peppermint oil. And nobody out there knows about this. How do we educate people so you can do that in a model? And that ultimately ends up 
it being important so it's deliverable. So you can evaluate all these different things. You can cover the different modalities. You need sustainability and marketability. If you do this, you can market it. Patients will come, okay? If you go out and say, we have created a healthcare system that delivers this, they will come. That's why everybody throws integrative stuff on their, on their thing. If they know they're going to get a different approach, and it's really not that different, it's just a shift, they will come, and you can market that. This is, and I, I hate, I, I, somebody's going to steal this. I shouldn't even say it. I keep, the people keep stealing the things that I talk about, and then they go and they use it somewhere else, and it drives me crazy. But I call this the value and volume system. We're in a volume system right now, right? Everything is based on RVUs. Everything is based on churning. How do we, and we can't just jump to let everybody have hour-long visits so you can sit there and talk to them. How do we create value in volume? And that's really what my job is, is to create a teaching system and a way for people to be able to do that. So every time you come in, you maximize each visit for that patient, for whatever it is that they're dealing with. And we want to do this throughout the whole health system. We want to be greening our hospitals, which you guys already do here. We want healing environments. And we really want to create a model for the nation. That's what we want to do. How do we do this so the rest of the country says, this is what we should do? Okay, um, this is Omar, my bulldog. Um, he comes in, I got him trained for pet therapy. This is another modality. This girl loves Omar, and, and unfortunately, she has a trach. And bulldogs are notorious for latching onto things. And I'm thinking, all I need is for Omar to go wonk on this trach, and, I'm, and my pet therapy program is gone, all right? Um, but he's... Uh, the kids love him. They love him. They won't come see me anymore on days that he's not there. Seriously, they, I mean, you saw it yesterday. They said, don't, he hasn't come in on Wednesdays. And they said, don't come, we're not coming on Wednesdays. So uh, this is just an old thing. It's from the Hua Hu Ching. And it's, this comes from Lao Tzu. And he says, they valued old ways that had been proven effective. And they valued new ways if they could be proven effective. If you want to stop, if you want to stop being confused, then emulate these ancient folks. Join your mind, body, and your spirit in all that you do. Choose your food, clothing, and shelter that accords with nature, and rely on your own body for transportation. <laughs> How simple is this? This is a couple thousand years ago. And this is what we really need to do. OK, so that is it. I went as quick as I, I know my stories get going in different directions. Do you guys have any questions on this? And I, I'll stick around if people want to come up and talk. I know some people might be interested in like specific things. I get this all the time. You know, I got a kid with this. What do you want to do? Or I got a kid with this. How do we do it? Um, I truly believe. I mean, this is this is where medicine is going. This is patient-driven. The doctors are now we're, we're showing it to be beneficial, and so we need to put this all together so that it works. You knew I was going to have a question. So, <laughs> I, I'm happy, so can I uh, do primary care? I do a lot of adolescent medicine. Yes. So what you talk about really speaks to me because, as the residents know, it's like, oh, Kathy's patient is here. She's got chronic fatigue. Yes. And she's anxious, and she's got stomach aches and headaches. Yes. How do we get the cultural shift, not just in our community, but in the community at large? Because yeah. I spend a lot of time. My headache after visit summary yeah. has nutrition, yes. sleep, exercise, my body therapy on it. Yes. And they say, Dr. Shevkin. Do you have a pill that can fix it? <laughs> can I go see the neurologist? Yeah, 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 yeah. Where they eventually get yeah. an MRI. Yeah. Or they'll say, can I go see my complementary alternative integrative person yeah. who does an IgG panel for food allergies? Yes. And they wind up on 
six supplements. <laughs> or what's worse is that they went to their neighbor who had chronic Lyme, who told them they probably have chronic Lyme, and don't listen to you because you don't know what you're talking about, right? Yeah. And nutrition, exercise, and stress reduction are really hard. They're harder to incorporate into this. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. What I, what I, and. And part of the, it's, a, it's a great question, and it's something we deal with every day. There's two things that I think about with that, or actually three. One is some of us have been talking about actually going out into the communities and actually having discussions with families and high school people and, and high schools and trying to get them to look at this differently. But the second part of this is, is, we, is starting it as early as we possibly can in discussions with people as part of their health. So for example, when I see kids with chronic kidney disease, I, the first time I see them as I start this discussion before we go with anything else, just as their initial visit, these are the things we're going to be focusing on. And the other part to this is remember, this is not a sprint. And in the United States, we think of it as a sprint. It's got to be instantaneous. How does this happen? And I always tell them, I don't care where you are tomorrow, and I don't care where you are a week from now. What I care about is where you're going to be in your life. You've been put on this universe to do something, and that's where I want to get you to be. So I tell them, do this in little dribs and drabs. The stuff out of UMass, looking at mind-body therapy, some of you might have seen this, 10 minutes a day actually ch t causes neuroplastic changes in the brain for stress reduction. So if you can get them to do something, something that they're at least a little bit interested in, for 10 minutes, 5 to 10 minutes every day, Take away going to a yoga class. Take away going to those things. Have them just start with that. And I look at this as, and I'm going to see it back, and we're going to go over this again. Having, it's not a perfect system, I know. I got a ton of them. I'm like, one kid yesterday just got up and she's, or this week and said, he doesn't understand me, and just walked out, okay? And, and the problem was I really understood her, and she didn't like that. There's, okay, last, I know we're going over. Two things I tell, three, there's, three, there's certain things I tell everybody. One is, First of all, at every visit, you're only to say the words, I don't know, once to me. Okay? Because when they say I don't know, it means they know. Two is, I'm going to be your mirror. If it doesn't make sense to me, I'm going to ask you about it. Instead of how many times you're having headaches or what, when are your headaches? Oh, I don't know. Unclear etiology, unclear time frame. Well, that doesn't make sense. You have them, you've had 375 headaches over the last year. Tell me a little bit more. You know, I don't say it that way. Then there's three things that you have to ask every patient. One, particularly in chronic issues. Can you imagine yourself not having this condition? Think about that. It's pretty conceited of us to think that we could just do something that's going to go away, right? Two, how would your life be different if it went away? If the reason they're like this is because they can't get back to school or they can't get back to gymnastics or whatever it happens to be, and you take it away, is that going to work? And three, not do you want it to go away, but are you ready to be well? And if they say no, good. That's the start. Because now they're starting to be a little bit more insightful. And it's a long answer to, not terribly helpful probably, but that's how I approach these kids. Yes? Yeah, I'm sorry. I know I ran over. But thank you guys. Thank you. All right. Yeah.